And I would have made millions if it hadn't been for you meddling fat boys. Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Those Meddling Vet Boys. My name is Tom. I'm Albin. And today we are going to be doing a little bit of a follow-on from the last episode. And we're sorry that it took so long for us to get the second episode out. Yeah, somebody decided to go to Hawaii. I was completely forced. It was a terrible, terrible time the entire time I was there. Just <laughs> lounging <laughs> on the beach, having the worst of experiences. <laughs> I don't believe a word of that. <laughs> no comment. <laughs> did you did you do anything fun in in Hawaii, Tom? Uh, yeah. Well, I love Hawaiian cuisine, and I had some really good food. If any of you are in Oahu, I highly recommend a restaurant called The Pig and the Lady. It is a Vietnamese-inspired fusion place in Honolulu, uh, in Chinatown. Which, if you're in Honolulu, is where all the best food is, and it was exceptional. I had a wonderful, wonderful meal. They made this beet dish with white chocolate and it was just the weirdest thing that i've ever been served and at the same time it was amazing huh yeah um i heard you went to a very good burger place yeah i uh i uh happened to travel through new mexico a couple months back and uh while we were doing that we stopped in a little town uh by the name of deming new mexico and didn't really expect much but we found a local burger joint by the name of blake's lotta burger and it has to be, I mean, one of the best burgers I've had in a long time. Um, really excellent flavor uh, in the meat. The big thing, though, that they do is they do a New Mexico chili burger. So right up the road from Deming is a, a small town by the name of Hatch. And Hatch is world famous for their chilies. Uh, they breed uh, very specific red and green chilies. And they're, they have lots of flavor. Not super spicy if you're not into too spicy but uh, anyway, Blake's Lotta Burger, they do a New Mexico style chili cheeseburger, not chili like beans and chili, but uh, New Mexico style cheeseburger that has chilies on it. So uh, absolutely delicious. The only um, issue you're going to have when you go to Blake's Lotta Burger is, do you want the green chilies or do you want the red chilies? <laughs> and so have you been watching any good shows lately as well? Yeah, you know, I watched uh, Book of Boba Fett. Um, no spoilers. It was good. Not as good as The Mandalorian, but it was good. For sure, the first four episodes can get a little ponderous, uh, but then it breaks out. And um, although there is a discussion to be had about how it breaks out and how it's a little odd, uh, the decisions that they made. And it's also very weird that it's titled the book of Boba Fett, but towards the end, Boba Fett almost becomes a supporting character, but still a good watch, decent watch. Um, writing's not bad. Action sequences can uh, range from decent to excellent. Some of, uh, <laughs> some of the best callbacks to classic cinema that I have seen in a long time, particularly classic Westerns and classic samurai films, so if you're into either of those films, those two genres of films, um, you'll see a lot of callbacks to some really excellent films. Particularly, there is a ton of classic spaghetti western 
in this show, and I loved every second of that. So I will give it a um, good solid 7 out of 10. It was a good watch. Well, uh, you know, Tom, I've seen you no-lifing Total War uh, over the past couple of days. What, what do you think of the, the newest uh, Total War Warhammer? So for those of you who don't know, uh, Total War is a PC strategy game, although I believe it's out on Xbox as well. And the newest and final installment in the trilogy they made based on the Warhammer Fantasy universe is out. Um, and it is awesome. Um, there are some kinks to be ironed out. I'm not, it's not like a cyberpunk release where everything is broken. Uh, <laughs> it's still, it, the game runs fine. I think right now it's at a seven and a half out of 10 for me. And I think that, but the company, uh, creative assembly, which has been that works on this game had a really good run with the previous game, Warhammer two of maintaining it, updating it, uh, getting ironing out the kinks and releasing high quality expansion for it dlcs and so i have really really high hopes for what this game can become over the coming months because uh, i think it'll be really one of the masterpieces of the total war saga but to more serious matters Alvin, what have you been reading about in the news what's what's been sticking out to you so um one thing that i did want to talk about uh today was you know we just or we're we're still going through the winter olympics um, they're almost done. The Olympics have always been not just about sports. And I know the people who run the Olympics try to say, you know, it's just a friendly competition. But honestly, it's not just about that. It's never been just about that. The underlying current has always been who has the best system. And this year's Olympics were pretty political in that. Um, so first of all, the United States and I think several other countries uh, did not send referees to the Olympics this year uh, as a form of protest. They're protesting Chinese. So obviously, uh, this year's Winter Olympics were in Beijing. And so the refusal to send referees was a form of protest to protest Chinese human rights violations, in particular, the jailing of uh, more than a million Uyghur Muslims, which I, I really hope that we can cover on the show sometime. But uh, of course, the the Chinese uh, released their own statements. But I think the official reason we protested was because of of uh, Chinese human rights violations. But to be perfectly honest, I think the real reason why we protested is because they stole our athletes. Um, so if you didn't know, two um, American-born athletes decided to well, both ski, actually, or no, sorry, one ski, one skate, um, for the Chinese team this year. There was a figure skater and there was a um, freestyle skier who were both American-born, but uh, because their parents were Chinese, they uh, were offered the opportunity to compete for the Chinese Olympic team. Now, uh, one did very well, one did not so well. Um, it has been very interesting to see how the world has reacted to these two um, so the skier, the freestyle skier, she won gold in the Olympics. And uh, when she came to the press conference, it was an interesting experience because several of the American uh, press members really took it to her and, and you know, asked her about Chinese human rights violations and how she felt basically about betraying the United States to uh, ski for a, a totalitarian security state. You know, she's been coached very well by the Chinese political system, and she handled that uh, like a champ. 
I don't know <laughs> if I'm that. I don't know if I'm this like um, Eileen Gu is the skier we're talking about, and yeah, she's, that's the one. She's already the best skier for her events in the world. Um, I don't know if I'm this pessimistic about her intentions. Um, I think that she just turned 18, so I don't know how political her mindset of the world is. As someone who's born to foreign parents, I can and born abroad, I can very much associate with the, you know, two citizenships aspect of her situation and the Olympics being in China. I feel that I could see what pulled her to be like, hey, I want to compete for China for these Olympics. Um, I think had the Olympics been in the United States this year, I think that she would have 100% competed for the United States. Really? Now, you, do, you do think that? I do. I do. Yeah. Mm. Now, what I think is funny is that the Chinese do not allow dual citizenship, but I would be willing to bet all the money in my pocket that Miss Gu has not renounced her American citizenship <laughs> and that the Chinese government has made some type of special arrangement for her, which if it came out would probably be very displeasing for a lot of Chinese born individuals who are abroad who are faced with the choice of, you know, no option of ever obtaining a foreign citizenship as long as they hold the Chinese one. I yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think that's totally true. I was going to say that uh, it's they've probably wiggled something out because she has been very quiet about her citizenship. And um, I have to say part of the reason why I'm super pessimistic about the whole thing is um, I recently read an article that <laughs> I think Gu got $32 million in sponsorship from Chinese companies. So, I mean, I get it. I understand, like, she's young, impressionable and but also they paid her a bunch of money so oh yeah tons of money <laughs> so you know uh <laughs> not I enough can't... money to not come to stanford next year though no, she's still coming no, back that is true that, that is she's, she's coming she's, well yeah. you can't get a stanford education in china <laughs> um, um for those of you who may not be familiar with some of the other political aspects of the olympics some of the other interesting stuff that happens is that there is an olympic truce um, where generally countries respect each other, just, you know, generally back away from armed conflict during the Olympics. Uh, it's been broken twice in history, obviously, both times by the Russians, uh, when they invaded <laughs> Georgia in 2008 during the Olympics then, and then also in Ukraine in 2014, so the Winter Olympics eight years ago. Um, they also broke the Olympic truce uh, to push troops into Ukraine. Um, but those are the only two times the Olympic truce has been broken, that I know of at least. Uh, and so it is something that does carry some political weight, even, even today. Now, I think that takes us right up to our main topic for the day, which is we want to look back at the conversation that we had on our first episode and talk about what's happened in the past couple of weeks, because a lot has happened. Yeah, a so lot. What, what stands out to you, Alvin? What's like the number one thing that we got to start off with? So I think we got to talk about, um, you know, clarify some of the predictions that we made in particular. So we said we made a, a no war prediction. And I think we need to clarify we meant no war with NATO. <laughs> so um, I think at this point, most of us um, in any kind of community, whether that be the diplomatic intelligence military community, are looking at the current situation and going, yeah, I think there's going to be a war. The I think that's a big one that we need to address. What else? What do you think? Uh, yeah, I think that's the biggest one for me is the 
hey, this is a regional conflict, which I think is pretty much in line with what we were thinking. At least that's what I remember from the first episode, talking about how, hey, if you're in eastern Ukraine, things are going to get rough in the coming months. Oh, yeah. If yeah, you yeah. live in Poland, you're you're fine. Yeah. Um, and I think that, if anything, I do think that we've shifted towards people in Poland being more worried than less worried. Um, <laughs> I think some of the things we've seen over the last 48 hours uh, have kind of made things considerably more tense uh, for everyone. Yeah, I think uh, I actually I do think we need to address that because um, we don't know when this episode is going to air. But today is the 22nd. The date that we're recording it is the 22nd. So in the last 48 hours, a lot of crazy stuff has happened. Definitely. And so, I, I OK, I have to be honest with you, listeners, that uh, I have been trying to get Tom to bet with me when the Russians were going to invade for months now. And uh, honestly, he should have taken it because he would have won every single bet in the last 48 hours. Let's see. What have we had? Um, so the first thing go, go ahead if you're going to say something. Yeah. So I think that the, the, the first thing at the very beginning is going to be Mr. Vladimir Putin our you know mischievous madman um who is neither mischievous nor mad coming out and saying that there is a genocide happening in eastern ukraine which is something that he said before but mm. now that he's going to be stepping up uh support and going to push russian forces into these regions of ukraine uh in the donbass region which he now considers to be independent um, yeah yep they are independent uh they are rebel-held regions, and he's saying that they are—they've been rebel-held for six years or eight years now, and so they now must be considered independent states. And so he's ordering troops to go and uh, secure these regions and uh, keep the peace, as it were. Yeah, um, I think this aligns a lot with basically with a lot again a lot of the predictions that have been made in the diplomatic and intelligence community, and I have to say. Um, the way that the current uh, U.S. administration has handled this crisis has been pretty admirable, in my opinion. Um, in particular, basically, uh, I, I have really liked seeing um, basically as soon as intelligence is received, it's aired. So um, it's been, I think, kind of our tactic to keep Putin from uh, doing what we're pretty sure he was going to do. Uh, and he's kind of pushed everything to the right on on multiple occasions, I would say. No, oh, yeah, I totally agree. Like the the intelligence, the release of intelligence, and frankly, it's it's been kind of freaking me out a little bit because uh, yeah. the way I've been looking at it, I'm like, oh my god, okay, so we're showing our hand, which I think is the correct call. Yeah. But then, if things don't go that way, and you avert war, and you manage to not have, you know, Putin doesn't say what he said yesterday and push troops into these regions, um, you kind of end up looking like, oh, you made a poor prediction. Yeah. But at the same time, it succeeded. And, you know, it could be argued that by making that prediction, you uh, changed their calculus and their judgment. Yeah, uh, I think that was part of the hope, honestly, was that, uh, you know, mm -hmm. if we if we could release this enough intelligence that we have, because, I mean, we've just had solid intelligence for months now. Um, if we could release enough of this intelligence that really showed his hand that he would kind of back down. But I think um, part of the issue is, of course, the mindset of Vladimir Putin himself. Um, he is just so dogged 
in in his determination to uh, exert influence in that region of the world right now. Yeah. The you know I I just think the I think the issue was we were really hoping that he would play it out like the average leader of a country, but we <laughs> we almost forgot that oh yeah this is this is Vladimir Putin that we're talking about. So with these provinces being recognized as independent, with the obvious next step being that, you know, he's going to wait a while. I don't know how long that might be. It could be six months. It could be another six years. And then they would, you know, go to the Russian Federation and say, please take us in. Um, Do you think that this will, because obviously the way I see it, there are a couple of ways forward for the Ukrainian government. The first is to say they push to retake these regions militarily, which would be very difficult for them, right? To deploy a large amount of their forces to actually reseize the two rebel-held areas of the Donbass region. Um, I think that's option number one. Does that sound plausible? Yeah, that sounds, that, uh, does it sound plausible? No, I would say no. Uh, like you're saying, um, so, I mean, let's... The the Ukrainian military is not a joke. It's it, over the last six seven years, it's really become a, a pretty reasonable force. But it's uh, it is not equipped, I think, to to take and hold the regions. Particularly, um, and the other issue in that is now that there's Russian troops there, is Putin going to is Putin going to see that as a reason to declare full on war with the the Ukrainians? Which I think is part of the issue that the Ukrainian government is is seen right now. And that I think is also part of the reason why they've handled it the way that they've handled it. Um, uh, you know, in, in the last few days, there have been multiple violations of the ceasefire agreement by the Russian backed separatists and the Ukrainians have kind of taken a step back from it and not, you know, not actually reacted aggressively to it because they know, uh, if they were to react aggressively to it, that could draw, that could give Putin the um, justification yeah. that he's looking to to uh, fully attack Ukraine. So, so then I think that the next scenario that comes to mind for me is the 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 Ukrainians kind of take the L, as it were, mm. and accept the loss of these two provinces uh, temporarily. Obviously, they're going to still argue or come out and their statements are still going to be that these two provinces were stolen. They're still part of Ukraine. They're going to, you know, petition for them to still be, you know, drawn as part of Ukraine on world maps and so on. But in reality, they're going to accept that these two provinces are separate, but they're going to use this as justification for much more pro-European policies domestically and a much faster shift towards NATO uh, just because they need to establish some type of system or defense that prevents this from happening again. I think that's, I think that's exactly right. Um, I think uh, in particular, I think, and honestly, I think that's kind of the play right now. Um, And I think that's, it seems like that's the strategy that Kiev is taking in this is that they're, they're look, they're going to do it Putin's way, but they're going to try to beat him at his own game. And that is to play the long game. Um, see, part of the, part of the reason why Putin acts the way he is is that because he faces no opposition, he can just play the long game. 
he doesn't have to worry about any kind of um, uh, transitional government or anything like transition in the government or anything like that. Mm-hmm. So I think Kiev's plan in this is to play the long game, and that is to kind of take the the strategic loss right now and maybe reattack it when they have the opportunity when they're backed by NATO. Uh, when they're a part of the European Union and their economy is a lot stronger than it is now, mm-hmm. um, I think I think that's it, the way that they've been acting. I think that is the strategy that they're they're adopting right now. Okay, so I think now I'd like to shift to what do you think? So the the president of the United States, President Biden, came out and announced today um, some obviously pre-packaged sanctions, um, sanctions going after specific individuals. Uh, which are considered to be very effective. Um, and to kind of explain that a little further, if you sanction a government, it becomes it's difficult to fully control everything that's going on, and so you might have an impact on the economy. Um, and but that's to the individuals who are making decisions that impact might not be felt on the short term. However, if I sanction an individual, so let's say a Russian oligarch with a lot of money, um, that individual is immediately very limited in what they can use their personal wealth for. They can no longer uh, take holidays the way they used to. They can no longer, you know, vacation to Europe. They can no longer use banks that work with American companies. Um, so, for that individual, for these decision makers, these sanctions that are targeted towards them have really drastic impact. And so, you have situations where some of these individuals who have been targeted by these sanctions in the past end up having to get paid in cash and store the cash at their house, which is obviously not the arrangement that they want to have with their employer. Mm. So um, I'm, I'm super glad you brought this up actually, because this is one that I've wanted to talk about, uh, talk about with you for a couple months now. I just really haven't had the opportunity. So this, here it is. So, and I kind of mentioned it to you, but um, there is a, this is a little, um, what's the word I'm looking for? This is a little on bordering on the line the the line of theory, but there are several economic experts that agree with this theory, and that theory is that Vladimir Putin is actually secretly the richest man in the world. And so the theory goes like this, and, and it, it's it's pretty credible in my opinion because it's backed by several um, economic experts, including one of uh, some uh, the the man that was once the, I cannot remember his name right now. But he was once the number one investor in Russia uh, to the tune of $4.5 billion. Uh, short story, uh, long story short, he got kicked out of Russia and on his way out the door, the Russian government stole $230 million from his company. So, And since then, he's kind of had a bone to pick with Vladimir Putin and has tracked his finances ever since. Uh, and so um, in, in the process, he and these other economic experts have uh, come to the conclusion that Vladimir Putin has stolen anywhere between 100 and 200 billion dollars of russian revenue um and if he if the 200 billion dollar number is correct that would make him the richest man in the world by quite a margin um but the the way that so the way that these economic experts say that vladimir putin hides this wealth is that he actually spreads it out amongst the oligarchs and so he runs it basically like a mob uh, in that he has given tens of billions of dollars to these oligarchs and they uh, run these funds for him and keep them in, in bank accounts um, in particularly in foreign uh, and 
bank account bank accounts in Europe and Asia. One of the things that the U.S. government is trying to do with these personal sanctions is sanction the oligarchs that are running this money, this dirty money for Vladimir Putin. At least that's kind of the running theory that I've read in a couple of different uh, economic uh, articles. So we're trying to break up the mob. Uh, <laughs> Which, trying to make up the global Russian mob. <laughs> and and so dictators hoarding wealth is not a new concept. And so uh, Hosni Mubarak, who was the president slash dictator in Egypt for a long time until the Arab Spring, um, which is a topic we'll cover on another episode, I'm sure, had a colossal amount of personal wealth, tens of billions accumulated over the time that he was in charge of the country. And the Egyptian economy is much, much smaller than the Russian economy. Yeah. Um, so Vladimir Putin has access to an incredible amount of national wealth and national production um, to enrich himself with. And so it, it's interesting to see uh, if people are actually able to track his finances and make any headway on how much money does this person actually have? What are they doing it? And then obviously, how effectively is this money at controlling the people who work for him? And will it remain effective if these people are no longer able to use that money to buy things that they want? Because I can pay you as much as I want, but if you can't go and spend that money except for in your immediate vicinity or only stores in your area because you have to pay in cash, um, that the amount of money I'm paying you suddenly loses a lot of value and maybe you start looking for other arrangements and uh, changing your employment from Russian oligarch to potential political dissident and or uh, political refugee in the United States. There's, I think there's two goals. Yeah. The, 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 the number one goal I think is to isolate a lot of Putin's allies in the, as in the Russian oligarch scene. Um, and to try to get them, yeah, like you said, to to uh, come to the light side, as it were. But I think also a big thing here is we're literally hitting him in the hitting Vladimir Putin in the pocketbook uh, as much as we possibly can. Uh, I think we're mm -hmm. hoping that in these in by doing these personal sanctions that we are directly affecting uh, Putin's wealth. And uh, we'll see how it how it goes. One other thing, I was super happy and surprised. Uh, bravo, Germany! Good, good on you for uh, so the Germans announced that they are uh, going to cancel the the pipeline, the North uh, Nord Stream two pipeline. Yep. Um, so that yeah, that's uh, I did not expect that. Con considering the uh, what a boon that was going to be to the German economy, I really didn't think the Germans would do that. But I mean, bravo to them. And I totally understand why they did it. Uh, I mean, I understand why they were so hesitant to do it in the first place. Believe me, I get it. Their, their um, energy right now, energy economy is kind of teetering. And they were really hoping to get some of that natural gas uh, straight in, uh, you know, that straight injection uh, into Germany. But they pulled the plug on that. Uh, what's your take on that? I think that. Um, the new German government played this uh, pretty well. They got a lot of uh, bad press when they said that they weren't going to be sending forces, or they were not. Uh, they were not interested in you know German forces deploying to Ukraine or supporting Ukraine militarily. Um, but I think that they 
retain the position as some type of broker. They have a very strong economic relationship with the Russians. Um, there is much more trade between Germany and Russia than any other European um, Union member and Russia. And so this Nord Stream 2 pipeline had been this development that the Russians had been looking forward to for years, and it had been delayed and delayed uh, because of COVID and other problems. And then the uh, government of the Den or the um, the Danish government said we don't want this uh, to go through our territorial waters, so it had to be rerouted. Um, this project has been a very difficult to finish, and it was supposed to tie the Russian and German natural gas industries together, essentially. But with the new government, which is much more environmentally conscious than the one that was previously under Angela Merkel, um, and also a government that has some pretty strong positions when it comes to uh, countries like Russia and China using their power to mistreat uh, smaller marginalized groups. Um, the Green Party, especially in Germany, has made some very strong statements about human rights and action that needs to be taken in order to prevent and halt human rights violations that are currently happening around the world. Um, and so I'm glad that this step was taken. Um, whether the Ukraine resolution, uh, whether Ukraine, the Ukraine situation is dissolved peacefully or not, I hope it doesn't get finished, but that's another story. Um, <laughs> and if the Nord Stream 2 pipeline being finished is what I have to give to get peace in Ukraine, I will very happily go and finish the last mile of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline myself in order to <laughs> save us from more World 3. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think also, but I think also there's a little bit of strategy in, in the move. I think the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was really going to almost tether, um, maybe maybe even make the Germans dependent on Russian gas for energy. Um, I, I th And I think maybe there was a little bit of, of forethought in that, um, you know, because right now the Germans, obviously, one of their biggest issues is producing energy. Um, they um, invested heavily in uh, renewables, which is great. But the technology is still developing, and it's not very um, what's the word I'm looking for. It's not very efficient, nor is it very cost effective. And so they've been having a lot of issues producing enough energy. Right now, they're buying a ton of it from France, and so they were really hoping that with this pipeline, they would be able to produce more uh, energy via natural gas, but at the cost of kind of connecting an umbilical cord almost you know, the the proverbial umbilical cord to the Russians to get the gas that they needed to produce this. I, I kind of think that this is almost a strategic um, move in that sense, almost to cut that cord and, and try to get the Germans back in an energy independence swing, because this will put a lot of pressure on the German economy to kind of uh, right itself, I would say. Yeah, and I think that there is a big problem for the Germans. And I mean, they're, the Germans are lucky that spring is coming, first of all. Mm. Um, that in in a lot of the United States, the peak power consumption season is the summer when we're all running AC. Uh, Europe, Northern Europe doesn't really have that problem. Um, while it does get hotter now than it used to in Germany during the summer, it's most houses in Germany still don't have air conditioning. But the winter is essentially almost over. Um, and they are going to be going into the spring so power consumption is going to drop because they're no longer going to be running the heat um and so this is gives us gives them at least until next winter before things get really serious where the during this time they can 
figure out where exactly they're going to source the power grid from. It's probably mm -hmm. still going to be primarily natural gas production. Yeah, I don't think the Germans are going to go open up some of their closed coal mines or anything. Um, and the Germans have said that they're not going to build more power, more nuclear power plants. So I think for Germany, it is figuring out, okay, cool. If I'm not buying it from the Russians, who am I buying this natural gas from? Right. Um, and some of it may come from us, honestly. Some from, some of it may come from the United States. Um, yeah. It may be shipped overseas by uh, LNG tankers. Um, so that remains to be seen. I want to kind of drag us back to uh, our good friends over in the East in Ukraine and think about, okay, what other actions should allies, allies of Ukraine in this case, be taking in the coming weeks uh, in order to show their support for Ukraine, do you think? Ooh, that's a great question. I mean, we've already supported with at, like literal tons of weaponry, um, lots of uh, other supplies. Um, the, 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 uh, today I watched, uh, the, an interview between, um, the chairman of the, uh, United States armed forces committee, uh, and the, um, Ukrainian government's ambassador to the British government. And, uh, the Ukrainian, uh, ambassador stated that the Ukrainian military now has, uh, enough anti-tank missiles for every single tank in the Russian army. Um, so that's a, I mean, that's a pretty encouraging statement. Um, I, you know, here's the issue. Ukraine is not a NATO member yet. And so I understand NATO's hesitancy and by hesitancy, I mean, unwillingness to actually physically engage in the defense of Ukraine. We do not have a legal obligation to do so. And to be frank, like you said, just about any of us would do anything to avoid World War III. And, um, and so taking a step back from a situation where we have no legal obligation to do anything, I think is, is fair and fine. I am loath to see that we have to do that because also part of me wants to help the, the Ukrainians. I mean, it's just such a, a, a tragic situation for them, to be completely honest. Mm -hmm. Um and I, I would love to see us do more. I was really sad to see Turkey keep the Bosphorus open uh, to Russian ships that were sailing in. I mean, but again, that's another one that's like, that's almost like an act of war to be like, hey, you can't sail through the Bosphorus. Yeah. Um, so I think the next move for NATO, it, it really depends on what, what Putin is going to do here, right? Like, maybe we should discuss like, what are Putin's end goals before we do this? Because like that'll kind of set up, you know, what we're, what we're going to talk about, like the reaction is going to be. Okay. So I'll take a crack at uh, Putin's end goal structuring. And I think that right now with this episode, his end goal is to obtain two independent provinces in Eastern Ukraine that the Ukrainian government has given up on administering. Mm. I think he's postured very heavily elsewhere to make the threat of full-on invasion seem real. But I think he has some manageable goal, which is just, hey, I want these two provinces to break away from Ukraine. And if that's what I achieved today, this year, I'm happy. And then I've established, I've uh, created a recipe, if you will, for how to bring about these, uh, this change or how to change the map of Europe, essentially. He said, okay, cool. I can go fund rebel groups, to destabilize a province, start a civil war, then help broker a peace deal with that recognizes rebel-held territory, 
as rebel held, waited out a couple years, recognized the independence of that territory, and then annexed it a couple years later. Hmm. Um, obviously, this is a timely process. So that's where I think the biggest fallacy in my thought process may be that Putin knows he's not going to live forever as much as he'd like that. Maybe he is more ambitious this time. But I think Vladimir Putin, if at the end of 2022, has two independent provinces between his border and the Ukrainian border, will be a happier person than he is today. And then I would imagine that he's going to try to repeat this process with the other areas of eastern Ukraine that are primarily Russian ethnically and culturally um, and less Ukrainian, where there is a much stronger pro-Russian sentiment. Uh, to create essentially what's going to what would be a buffer state between him and Ukraine, and then should Ukraine ever join NATO, he doesn't have to worry about bordering another NATO country. I think that's a that perfectly sums that up too. Yeah. Uh, also, I mean, some of me kind of like thinks that you know history joke here, you know that you know Putin has been eyeing a, a warm water port just like the rest of his Russian ancestors for you know two hundred years. Um, and so he would love to connect, uh, Crimea to Russia via land because the bridge that they've been building has just been an absolute nightmare and it's still <laughs> not done. Um, so I, I think that might like, you know, as much as me, as the, the history nerd in me, like funnily thinks that that's what he's trying to do. I think the goal here for him right now is to do exactly what you said. And that is to get those two regions in the Eastern part of Ukraine recognized as independent or at least get them operating independently from the Ukrainian government, even if nobody recognizes them, but to get them, you know, an all but official capacity operating uh, independently. The, I think the posture that he's in allows him to take advantage of any other, you know, any other kind of situation. Like I've said, if the Ukrainians decide to put their foot down and move their military into those regions, he is postured to invade all of Ukraine. And right. um, and obviously that's the the knife to the proverbial throat. It is the threat. And like we said last time, Putin is a man that that likes to keep his options open. And I think that full invasion scenario is not off the table. Um, and I think that has really been the warning that the United States has been trying to convey to the world is it's not necessarily that he will fully invade Ukraine and take over it and exit or whatever, which uh, the Ukrainians, I think, rightly think uh, or rightly have stated that it would be almost impossible for the Russians to do something like that. Right. Ukraine is a very large country, well, yep. very large by the standards of Europe country, uh, 40 million people. Uh, I mean, the Russians have 170,000 soldiers, uh, but to try to deploy that and um uh, the Ukrainian army has recently become one of the world's best equipped armies so they could almost certainly stage an insurgency for honestly in my own thinking i mean more than a decade i would say so mm -hmm. i don't think putin wants to get in in that um mire of insurgency he doesn't want ukraine to become his afghanistan um <laughs> yeah so the i think you're absolutely right in he will be very happy to have these two independent states operating independently in all but official an official capacity so okay that makes sense to me um 
I don't know. Is there anything else that you wanted to talk about on this well, episode? Yeah, I did want to talk about, um, you know, now that we've talked about that, I want to talk about, you know, how are we going to react as as oh, a NATO alliance? You that's know? right. So I think, why don't you go first? I think that now is, I think at this point, the Russians have demonstrated a willingness to move forward in certain areas. And I think NATO needs to, uh, one, come up with a very clear plan to stop something like this from happening in a NATO country. And it needs to publish this plan, make it very clear to the Russians that, hey, you may think you have developed, you may have cracked the code on some magic playbook to a next territory in the 21st century. However, like this is what we have that, you know, prevents this and publish it so that all the NATO countries, especially the ones that are close to Russia, understand that, hey, as a member of this alliance, we're not going to let this happen to you. And then I think an expediting of the memberships of some of these countries in Eastern Europe, it, should they request to join, uh, is an order that they need to be given uh, some type of processes that are faster than NATO has been in the com- in the last twenty years for accepting new members in order to grant them this protection. And I think that's uh, yeah, that's that's crucial. Uh, you took the words right out of my mouth. I was going to say number one priority should be NATO expansion. I think um, we need to fast track. So already, uh, the Ukraine is already in the process for, of joining NATO. We need to fast track that. The Finns have announced that they want to join NATO. And the rumor mill is saying the Swedes are thinking about joining NATO, which is mind-blowing in my opinion. But... All of these, all of these countries would be such a valuable asset to NATO. Um, I mean, we really should. And they're, I mean, they're fellow democracies. We've had wonderful security relationships with the Swedes and the Finns for decades now. And if they really are interested in joining NATO, and if it is looking like you know uh, Putin is going full imperial mode and and attempting to expand Russia. Uh, I think we we really should, you know, help these countries out and and give them the opportunity to um, join NATO and have a much stronger security for their own country. And I think that's what will happen. Honestly, um, I think it, it has been really pleasing for me to see NATO come together in the way that it has over the last few months. Um, NATO has presented a very strong front, to, united and together. And um, I think it should stay that way, and I think it would will get stronger. If anything, I think um, we'll see a, a return almost to a Cold War era NATO strength. You know, we're already starting to see um, plans to send more troops into Europe from the United States, uh, and you know, I I think that's a good thing. In in that, um, as we've said, I think Putin, like everyone else, really wants to avoid World War Three. Uh, he has no plans to rule over uh, a wasteland. And so to see a stronger NATO, I think, would be a, a stronger deterrence for him. And so I hope that uh, that's exactly what we'll get. Uh, I, ha- I see no reason to, to suspect otherwise, that that's not exactly what we'll get. Yeah, I agree. I think that's the likely way forward. And I, I also share the feeling that it'd be interested to see these countries like Sweden, Finland, that because of their, you know, 
closeness to Russia, have refrained from joining NATO in the past, but it's them seeing the situation in Ukraine and saying, okay, cool, they're doing it to the Ukrainians now. How long before the Russians start pushing some of their borders on the I, northern side? Yeah, and- I think in particular, like the Finns, I mean, I totally understand why exactly why they announced that they want to join NATO because, um, I mean, historically too, like they have a series of, of, uh, of they fought a series of bloody wars with the Russians for their own independence. Mm-hmm. Um, the Winter War, which is uh, most historians argue is part of World War II, and and other wars before that, their their war of independence before that. I totally understand why, and then. You know, they they kind of struck a, a very uneasy peace during the Cold War by using what we what we now call the Finland model of democracy, right. and that is where they were democracy with heavy Soviet influence, um, and that was the only way that they could, you know, survive. Uh, but now, I mean, now they're they are looking at it like, oh, maybe we're next. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, yeah. So I think I. I'm sorry that this is happening to Ukraine, but I think it is sparking a change in the the way that European countries approach this kind of dynamic with this neighbor that's very much more powerful than any European state on its own, um, and that has shown this kind of proclivity for shenanigans when it comes to international affairs and borders and conflict and private armies and cyber attacks and political assassinations, uh, really kind of throwing back to uh, a way that things used to be done during the Cold War. Um, and so I hope that this does bring the alliance to a better point. And I hope it also pushes the alliance into the 21st century because I think that NATO after in the 90s really stopped uh, innovating and improving and you know didn't really develop as an alliance because it, they felt like they had no real adversary or no real reason to. And I think that's obviously not the case as we're seeing right now. And uh, yeah. Yeah, I'm hopeful for the coming years. And I'm also hopeful that the situation in Ukraine does not escalate. And I think that that's what's crucial, is that even if the Ukraine situation doesn't escalate any further and uh, it doesn't, there is no wide-scale armed conflict, even if the situation doesn't escalate, I think that there has been enough, enough events to already push these other European countries towards NATO membership um, so I think that damage is done. And unfortunately, what that means is that Vladimir Putin is less likely to back down now because he's he knows he's already damaged his position on certain fronts. And so he really needs to make sure that he comes away from this with something. That's what scares me, that I think that he may be willing. He thinks this is his last hand of blackjack when it comes to the Ukraine issue. And he's already lost any neutrality that his other border countries were claiming to have. Uh, And so he now needs to come away and he wants some independent Ukrainian provinces as his going away present. Well, we'll see how things develop. Indeed we shall. So we promise that for the next episode, we are not going to be doing a Europe episode. Uh, (laughs) we, We had something else planned and we'll probably do it as the third episode, but... Uh, because things develop so much in Ukraine, and I will say a lot of the time when it comes to foreign relation analysis and intelligence work, it's difficult to see your predictions come true or be proven wrong in the short term. Generally, a lot of these things look out 
on the span of one, five, ten years. And so you don't often get to have a conversation about assessments that were made very recently. And so we wanted to seize on this opportunity and say, hey, look at that. We talked about a topic, made made some analytical assessments, talked about our decision, what led us to those decisions. Um, and then we now actually get to talk about them and say, hey, okay, these are the things we were right about and these are the things we were wrong about. Um, and then talk about why we were right or wrong about those things. Any other parting thoughts, Alvin? No, I think that's uh, that's about it. All right, so thank you everyone for joining us. And this has been the second episode of Those Meddling Vet Boys. Yeah, if you guys want uh, to get a hold of us, don't forget we have an email at uh, thosemeddlingvetboys at gmail.com. No spaces, no capitals. Um, oh yeah, we'd love to hear from you guys. So hit us up and uh, have a wonderful day. <laughs>